Pet Care Rockstars is brought to you by... Do you have a pet care business but need a website? Well, look no further than the Pet Care Rockstars website solution. We can deliver to you a fast-loading, mobile-optimized website that's also SEO-friendly. Your customers will love our websites, and you'll love the affordability. We'll also give you all the tools you need to easily maintain your website, even if you have little technical knowledge. Go to PetCareRockstars.com slash websites now to get more information. Welcome to Pet Care Rockstars. Solid advice you can implement into your own pet care business today. Whether you're just starting out, getting ready to grow, or ready to scale. You'll hear firsthand from Pet Care Rockstars who've been down this path before, including what worked, what didn't, and some tools you'll need for your awesome journey. Now the host of Pet Care Rockstars, Dave Westwood. My guest is a general manager of Pet Resorts Australia, which have two locations down under. He also is the current director of boarding, training, daycare, and pet sitting for the Pet Industry Association of Australia. In addition, he trains and lectures the students for the qualification of Certificate 3 in professional dog training and behavior. Uh, when he's not busy doing all this stuff, he's the host of the podcast, The Canine Paradigm, and he's also busy riding motorcycles or swimming with sharks. Uh, Glenn Cook, welcome to Pet Care Rockstars. Thank you very much, Dave. It's an honor to be on the show. Awesome. Hey, I am uh, thrilled to have you. I know we had some tech issues and uh, got got to know each other pretty good before this. <laughs> so yeah, that was a little bit of fun, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they, you know, it, it all sounds great in the after product, but all the before stuff, uh, you know, that people don't get to see, um, you know, you know, it's pretty interesting. It's like a whole new podcast in and of itself. Well, so, from one podcast show producer and editor to another, I know and feel your pain very well. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, you know, because, uh, yeah, you can definitely relate, uh, doing your own podcast. So yeah, we've had all the same issues ourselves before when we've tried to get shows on the road. So yeah, I'm feeling your brother. Of course. Yeah. I don't know how people <laughs> do it live. So no, I don't. <laughs> hey, Glenn. So tell me, how did, how did you get into the pet care business? It all started from my first dog. I had a, uh, a Rottweiler cross called Harley and, uh, that was probably about 30 years ago. Um, I, I've had I've had dogs in and out my life, most of my life. Started with a German Shepherd um, when I was a child. And then, as I said before, I, I migrated across. When I left home, I bought a little pup. Um, I sort of co-boarded him with my housemate. And um, we decided that being a, a large breed dog and a, a dog of that sort of nature, training was definitely something that was going to be in his um, best interest and our best interest, social responsibility, etc. So, I mean, I was training him. I was, you know, reading books and, and getting advice off people and meeting people down at the local park and so forth. But uh, as he got older, uh, I was training at a gym at the time, funnily enough, a bit of a cross story. I was doing um, like uh, self-defense and martial arts. And the guy that was my mentor was running a dog training school. And I didn't know it was a dog training school. I thought it was a, I thought he was training uh, greyhounds because people kept telling me that he had working dogs. And in my mind, that either meant sheep dogs or uh, greyhounds. So it never really crossed my mind to speak to him about uh, my dog or doing obedience with him. And uh, we were training one night. He was chatting with me and he said, you know, what have you been up to, mate? And I said, oh, I've just got my pup and, you know, I'm about to join a dog training club. And he said, well, why aren't you coming and training with me? And I said, 
you do greyhounds, don't you? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, uh, I thought you're into greyhounds, like racing greyhounds. He said, no, 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 not at all. He said, we do uh, obedience and, and uh, law enforcement training. And uh, I said, oh, I'd love to check it out. I've never had anything to do with anything like that in the at all in my in the past. I, I said, I've never seen anything like that. And he said, well, mate, come down Thursday night, uh, come and check it out and see what you think. So um, took the pup down, went down there and uh, did a, a, a lesson with the, the crew down there. Um, mainly at that time, I was just focusing on purely the puppy class and the development side of things and uh, met some fabulous people down there who little did I know it would become my lifelong friends. But uh, absolutely fantastic. Fell in love with it straight away. Um, got heavily involved in it. I was literally training there every Sunday and every Thursday night. I think they had classes running. And uh, after about a year of being involved in there, they started doing the National Dog Trainers Federation pilot course. And they asked me if I want to be on it. But at the time, I was sort of very interested in training my dog. So I saw, I reluctantly said no. Um, but I watched uh, everybody on the course. And I was, um, I was sort of like staff there, unofficial staff at the time, because I'd been there so long. And I was sort of helping out in the background. And uh, Boyd, the gentleman, he was my original mentor. I was around at his house when he was lecturing uh, the NDTF. So I got to sit on there and watch what was going on. And I was enthralled with it. I just thought this is absolutely fantastic. I really want to find out a lot more about this. So when the long story short, when the opportunity came up to get involved in the course, which was the second course running, I jumped straight on it. Um, within halfway through that, uh, Boyd approached me and he said, mate, I really need someone to help me run the center. Would you be interested? So that was my initial injection into the pet care training, uh, world or the dog industry because uh while i was working for him he had a small bank of kennels uh probably about uh 20 30 kennels at the time that was on the property and uh i was down there running the kennels for him so we had uh dogs that we were mainly either rescuing or deliberately looking to buy that we were training for law enforcement applications um so if people needed a personal protection dog or they were looking for um dogs specific for security roles uh, we were we were allocating um, suitable dogs for that job and and training them. So I spent um, six or seven years, I think, working there um, predominantly. And um, it eventually came that uh, I became the the general manager or the training director of the facility. So we had uh, dog training centres, a couple of them at the time, and that business was growing as well, uh, as well as the um, the business down at the kennel. So we had quite a, my, my involvement was full-time working with working dogs. So it was, uh, it was absolutely captivating and I, I can't express my, my gratitude enough for, for Boyd and the people that I was working with at the time, because it was an amazing apprenticeship and a, and a fantastic grounding to learn what I learned today. Well, I, it definitely sounds like you had, had a really good mentor and obviously have applied a lot of that stuff, you know, probably today that applied when you first started. Um, so that being said, I mean, training is kind of one of those areas in the pet industry. And I know this is something you address on your podcast um, that can be pretty controversial because there's a lot of different philosophies and methods that, quite frankly, are in direct conflict with one another. Um, what are your methods of training and where do you see some of the pitfalls in the industry as a whole? 
whether it be in Australia or in other parts of the world? That's a great question. I I consider myself, or I've nominated um, a term called positive first, um, which is slightly different than the term positive only. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, um, what would you call it? Um, labels about what people consider themselves to be. I mean, the main one that, that people call themselves is either a force-free or positive only or a balanced trainer. Um, I like to try and escape the term of being a balanced trainer, although I still consider myself uh, part of that genre um, for the predominant reason that um, I like to, when I'm, when I'm working with dogs, I like them to have a positive first experience with me. And that's why I coined the phrase originally, because I like dogs to realize that I'm not the enemy and I'm not there to, to beat them up. Um, like most people um, on the other side of the fence consider that balanced trainers do, which is totally untrue. However, um, a lot of people that I know, most people in the industry that I work with are absolutely and definitely positive first trainers. When they meet dogs, they want they absolutely want them to enjoy the world of training. Um, their whole idea is getting across to the dog and finding a methodology of communication that works best for them and the dog um, and improves the relationship overall, reduces the amount of stress that the dog has to go through while it's learning um, that communication technique. So, um, I guess you answer, you asked me before, what do I, what problems do I see in that area? Well, I think while people are spending more time fighting and bickering with each other, less product, less productivity is adhered to. We lose time and focus on the important things, which is in my mind is keeping dogs educated and out of pounds. The, the more dogs we keep out of pounds and the more dogs we keep in homes, the less dogs get destroyed for no reason. I think that if we find a common cause to work together, that should be it. However, um, that's still a point. Uh, that's still a point of contention because a lot of people consider that their way is a superior way, and then it gets back to bickering over the less important things. Yeah, and uh, that's where I see it, and I, and I think you could apply that to almost everything, right? You know, whether it's politics or everything, you know, sports or whatever. You know, everybody thinks their way is the right way. Um, so, you know, it's funny you you mentioned about the dogs not experiencing stress and what have you. Um, one thing I loved in kind of doing a little research on you is that you mentioned that you've been successfully training people and their dogs for over 26 years. Um, training really is also about training the pet parents as much as the dog, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you don't have somebody who is prepared and organized to train a dog, I mean, that's the that's the issue at hand is that most people absolutely have no idea what they're doing when they get a dog. Um, they get pressured into doing it themselves, uh, their kids want to do it, the the spouse wants to do it, or the partner, whoever wants to do it. Somebody um, usually encourages somebody else to get a dog, they get the dog, and they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. It's I, I compare it to learning another language, I guess, and that is that when you first learn to talk, 
to speak another language, you're you're completely unorthodox. You have no idea what you're doing or saying. Um, you're trying to gesture, and I mean, you do a lot of baby talk with each other. So you know, very simplified um, uh, phrases and nouns that people are, are translating backwards and forwards until you can, uh, until years later, you can actually hold somewhat of a converse, of a conversation. And it's not unlike when you're learning to talk to a dog. Uh, you've got to learn to experience what the dog is going through, how the dog understands, how the dog uh, prepares itself to live in a human world. And here's the thing, Dave, is a lot of people think that dogs are doing bad behavior. This is one of the things that people tell me all the time. My dog's doing bad behavior, but they're not. They're just doing behavior. They're just doing what they understand to do until they understand differently. And that's what a lot of people in... Um, in dog ownership or pet ownership need to understand is your animal does what it thinks it needs to do until it learns differently. So your job ultimately is to bring that education to the dog because after all, you're saying live in my world, my rules, my world, but the dog doesn't understand your rules, your world until it's taught. So I find one of the most important aspects of education is that the handler knows what that means and knows how to converse properly with the pet. Once you do that, then it's fair to say to the animal, well, here are the consequences for not doing that because you know how to do it. The problem being is that a lot of people uh, don't prepare their pet for that experience and then they lose their temper and then the pet ultimately pays for it, either by being scalded, by being punished or paying for it with its life, which I think is a, is a terrible ordeal. Absolutely. And it sounds like, I mean, that seems like a, problem that's uh prevalent in australia i mean because i i think in america you know where i'm at it's doesn't seem quite as prevalent but you know tell me about that and, and what that i guess atmosphere is like down down under oh uh, it's prevalent everywhere it, i mean there's certainly pockets of it in america and and europe and all over the world there's there's constant um bickering backwards and forwards about um, who's right and who's wrong and what to do and um, how to fix the problem. But there's also um, some good light at the end of the tunnel there where there are um, cooperative groups of people who do want the best for pet groups and pet ownership and are trying to work together and bridge the gap, which is absolutely fantastic. And I applaud um, the men and women involved in those organisations that are trying to get together and um, reduce um, the impact that it's actually having on pets. What I think uh, needs to happen more is more more communication and more um, fellowship that we get together and we outline what the problems are and try and look at how to significantly reduce them overall. Um, do you find that to be easier or more difficult in today's world where it's, you know, social media driven, internet driven, obviously communication is a lot easier, but in some ways, probably a lot more difficult, <laughs> you know, because everybody does have their own <laughs> viewpoint, right? Social media is one of the most wonderful in things that I've ever seen in my life, but it's also to many people, it's one of the greatest curses that ever existed. And for one of those reasons, when I'm off, often teaching uh, students on the NDTF course, I remind them that the internet and social media allowed the people that were walking the streets with a sandwich board and a bell ringing um, and calling out the end of the world is nigh and now following you back to your living room. Um, you know, you were able to walk past them on a street corner and shake your head and just keep walking. 
Um, however, now they're popular bloggists and they, um, yeah, they they very much hold an active campaign and an active audience as well. And it seems the crazier some people are, the more people will follow them either for entertainment or they get um, stuck into uh, wanting to follow them to see what they're going to do next. And unfortunately with some of these people, if you throw enough mud, it sticks. They get fans, they get followers, they um, coerce people, they find people who are just as crazy, if not more crazy than they are. Uh, and that's, I think for me, that's a general concern and, and many people that I speak to, that's a general concern as well. Yeah, I think uh, people do like to have kind of watch the car crash so to speak so yeah I, yeah I, it's very it can be an entertaining car wreck sometimes yeah so um you know getting back to what we were talking about with you know training um you know pets but also training the their handlers um what are some of the difficulties you find not so much with the pets but with the people i think probably the one thing that I keep coming back to is apathy. Uh, it's not just in pet care, it's in all industries. Uh, we did a podcast yesterday where we were talking about group classes and, you know, we compared that to gym memberships where people will, you know, they'll, they'll get on a bit of a buzz thinking they're going to get fit at the start of the year. They sign up, they do about three or four lessons and then they um, cancel the gym membership halfway through the year. Uh, and it's not dissimilar to pet care a lot of people get pets uh, they do start with good intentions they do a puppy school and that's it uh the amount of people that i've seen over my career that have started off in puppy school and you know now they've got a two-year-old dog with excessive problems uh in obedience or even social interaction issues and you you question them and you say to them look can you give me a a bit of a rundown on your education history with the dog and i'll say oh yeah i did puppy school and I'll say, oh, right, okay, what did you learn at puppy school? Oh, you know, my dog ran around the floor in a vet clinic with a lot of other puppies. And what else did you do? Oh, we did sits and drops. And I said, okay, can you show me a sit or a drop? And they'll say to the dog, sit. The dog will sit for two seconds and then get up and stroll away or be distracted by something else. So I, I guess, in, you know, um, in, a, in the long version of it, what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is that people do start with really good intentions. Um, and as they say, the highway to hell is paved with good intentions, but they start with good intentions. Uh, unfortunately, life gets in the way and they become a little apathetic and the poor old dog pays for it because they don't do enough work. Then they get angry with the dog that they believe that the dog has skills and knowledge, which it certainly does not, because this is the same expectation of putting a child through prep or grade one at school um, in a very, very early um, elementary level of schooling and then expecting them to have university degree capabilities. Uh, and people do the same with a dog. And I think, wow, that's just not fair. Uh, you've given them no chance and you've given them no foundation to be set up correctly for the rest of their life when you've just given them such a small peek into the expectations that we have for them. Yeah. And I know just in you know, my business, obviously, we interact with a lot of dogs as well. And one thing I see is that they are spoiled to the point where it's like, okay, we don't want to discipline them or, you know, that bad behavior that they're doing. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, and they kind of lose any training that they might have had. Um, not sure if you find that as well. Yeah, 
a lot of look i i guess it's what you're prepared to live with and this is what uh, most trainers and their clients should that question should be posed to them is what are you prepared to live with what do you want ultimately at the end of the day and expectation has got to meet reality at the same point uh if you're if you've got expectations of your dogs then you've got to have a reality in mind of what the dog is actually capable of because a lot of times where i find people want to do uh, amazing things with their dogs it's totally anthropomorphic um, meaning that they expect the dog to have human qualities and capabilities well that's um, sadly unreachable for a lot of dogs and it sets them up to fail uh, whereas if they do understand that the dog is a dog and it thinks like a dog and its world is predominantly that of the canine species and you're prepared to work within that, you'll find that you can kick some major goals. I mean, dogs are clever. They're smart. We know they're smart. And new science and new technology is pointing in that in the right direction to show us that uh, with MRI technology, as I said before, regions of their brain are activated by stimuli so we know that they're thinking about things we know that they're intelligent we know that they can uh, work through skills that benefit them if you're prepared to focus that as part of your training you'll find that you can get some uh, major um, advantages that will work both for you and the dog yeah absolutely and i've seen you know some dogs that are really really smart um you know one of one of my dogs absolutely seems that way another one eh, you know i'm not so sure about it um so you know you've been doing this a long time you know over 25 years and mm. how has the business changed in the years that you've been a part of it well i'd say going back to social media that really had an impact on training itself um, I guess the best thing that came from that was the access to knowledge and people all over the world. That's both a blessing and a curse. Um, but I'm going to let's talk about the blessing side of it. When we first started training, uh, and and certainly being in Australia, we were very limited to what material and access to that material that we had. So when we wanted to find out new things, we either had to wait for somebody to travel overseas and bring back the information, or we had to purchase um, old VHS tapes back in the day. There's probably listeners on the show which wouldn't know what a VHS tape is, um, but you and I, I think we're roughly from the same vintage, so we would. Yeah. Um, so we yeah, we had to wait from, for uh, VHS tapes to arrive from either America or wherever we're purchasing from in Europe, and you know, as a group, we'd sit down to watch them. These days, we've got so much access to fantastic information online. I mean, you've got supercomputers that are in your pockets that you can grab and access information immediately. You can talk to trainers anywhere. Uh, you've got such broad capabilities of reaching out and finding out factual information. So even if somebody has given you um, some sort of mythical advice, you can look online and you can find out or you can speak to people and fact check that information. So in that aspect, I've seen that as a major advantage for people to be able to learn from. I mean, there's so much good academic online courses that people can do. There's accesses to shows like our podcast, for example, where people can uh, listen and gain information and insight on training from educational podcasts. I mean, really, the world's your oyster at the moment as far as technology goes. It's it's just given us such a, a great reach. So when I first started my career, like I said, we didn't have all of this, but we did have a very sound community. And I guess I had a blessing 
um, from my original mentor, a guy called Boyd Hooper, as I mentioned before, he was a very instrumental in developing good foundations. Like he would travel overseas and uh, go and seek out people who were uh, trendsetters or um, people who were um, very pivotal in, in great information at the time. And he would bring back their information. So he was, uh, he was predominantly responsible for organizing and writing the, the structure of the National Dog Trainers Federation. Very, very clever and very intelligent uh, and very academically sound guy in, um, in developing these uh, footprints in what we actually know today, all these foundations and what we know. So I had a blessing that I had good mentors. I had people that I could turn to and ask lots of questions and get very sound answers from people who didn't really uh, dabble in, in bullshit. Um, that's not too much of a curse for the show, I guess. No, we're good. <laughs> okay, good. So yeah, we, we didn't dabble in, in anything like that. We were, uh, we were trying to be as factual as we possibly could. I mean, we had a mission to try and make sure what the information that we were giving was as factual as it could. I, didn't mean that everything that we were doing was always a hundred percent, but we tried. And that's what I liked best about the crew that I was working with at the time is that we tried our best to be uh, the best we could with what we had at the time. Uh, and I guess that's, that's great advice for anybody is uh, it's an old quote uh, that says, uh, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. Yeah. And Boyd definitely seems like he's been a mentor for you. I mean, you've mentioned him a lot here and you've kind of done some things yourself. Um, as I mentioned in the open, um, you're the director of boarding, training and daycare and pet sitting for the Pet Industry Association of Australia. Um, we do have a couple of, you know, NAPS, PSI, a couple other associations in America. Um, what is the Pet Industry Association of Australia? What do they do? What's the reach? And you know, tell us a little more about that. Well, the Pet Industry Association was uh, formerly a part of uh, PIJAC, which is an American-based organization, which is the Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council, I believe the acronym stands for. And right now, uh, we've sort of broke away and formed our own one in Australia several years back, which was the Pet Industry Association of Australia, um, with the common goal of uniting the pet industry, all the sectors. So I represent one sector, but there's also a director that represents aquatics. There's directors that represent um, uh, stores, uh, merchants, um, pet food, um, even though they've got their own industry. We're the whole idea of the Pet Industry Association was to combine all the sectors to represent everybody in uh, the pet care or um, the pet industry, I guess, uh, to make sure that we've at least got a code of standards and conducts that are, are higher standard than what people were currently operating at. Um, so when people need a membership body to regulate the industry, to speak with government, to speak with local laws, uh, to work with uh, as an advisory council for advocacy against issues when there's uh, welfare issues at, at hand. Uh, the role of the, of the Pet Industry Association was to make sure that we're across everything and we're trying to work with and advise our members to the best capability that we possibly can. Yeah, and how does uh, someone become a member? Uh, membership is, uh, well, if you're a, a business or a trainer or it's certainly in my sector, if you're a, if you operate daycare, if you operate a boarding kennel, if you operate, um, a training company, um, you apply to be a member. 
um, for membership, what we need in, especially in an organization where you're either daycare or boarding kennel, uh, you'll be asked to have a audit, which is generally carried out by a local veterinarian who will come out and check through your facility. And once they tick all the boxes and uh, sign on the bottom to say that they've been through your facility and it's in good working order, uh, they'll send in some photos. Uh, I'm usually the person who checks that or if it's a local uh, business, I'll go out and check it out. Uh, make sure that uh, the business is in good working order, that they have good um, procedures, good standards and guidelines in place. And uh, once we're all satisfied with that, we give them the, the the big green tick and they become a member. No, that's great. Um, you know, I because I know with some of the associations in the United States, it's, hey, if, if you have a checkbook and can write a check, you're a member, basically. So um, it's good to see that there is a vetting out process and and some sort of qualification to actually become a member. Um, so I, I would imagine this, you know, if you say, hey, I'm a member of um, of this, that, that, you know, it does carry some weight with customers, I would imagine. It does. And uh, people like to, to know that uh, if they see the sticker on your front door, because I mean, most organizations will display the uh, membership sticker on the front door saying that you're a valid and active member, uh, that if they do have some sort of um, suggestion or complaint against the business or anything like that, like if, if they didn't think that the services or guidelines were met, um, they can actively contact the office from the Pet Industry Association and they can speak to the uh, one of the membership service um, providers there and uh, and let them know what their grievance is or they can let them know what their complement is. And uh, that can be passed on to the service provider. So at least they get active feedback or and the industry knows what's actually going on. So if we've got a, a rogue member that's not um, complying with the membership rules and regulations, then at least we know what's going on. Like if we start seeing that there's uh, four complaints a month against a member, then obviously that there's something that we need to deep dive into and have a closer look at and decide whether or not that person still should be a member of the organization. No, it makes, absolutely makes sense, especially if they're, you know, hopefully they wouldn't be getting that kind of negative feedback on a consistent basis. Um, so, you know, we, we talked about your training background, um, but also um, you, you run a boarding facility. Um, so Pet, Pet Resorts Australia, um, mm. you actually have two locations, right? So t tell me a little bit more about that. So Pet Resorts Australia, I started with them uh, almost 10 years ago now. Um, sorry, it's going to be nine years this August I started with them. And I was originally from Melbourne, Australia, which is down the southern end of Australia for, for the US listeners who aren't really aware of our geography. So that's on the south end uh, down in Victoria. And I was working in the pet industry down there for quite some time. And I got the job offer from uh, my current uh, employer, the person who owns the business. And they said to me, uh, would you be interested in a sea change moving up to Sydney, which is uh, further up the coast on the east side of Australia? And I said, um, let me think about it. Uh, it was a whole great big uh, change of plans at the time. And they sort of gave me an idea of their vision and what they were looking to do and what they were hoping to achieve. And uh, I accepted the offer uh, eventually and uh, moved up here. And I, I've never looked back since. When I got here, there was a lot of work to be done. 
um, the owners of the business uh, weren't, uh, I guess they didn't have uh, a lot of knowledge of the pet industry at the time. So they were relying heavy on me to uh, sort of take the reins and help educate them. They had good uh, business acrimen, but uh, not a lot of experience in pet care. So we combined our knowledge. I learned a lot of uh, great information from um, my the business owners in regards to um, good management and business skills. I got introduced to a lot of influential people and uh, I got uh, some good education on that aspect. So what I brought to the table was my experience in, in pet care. So we started to rewrite the rules and guidelines and developed, uh, you know, operating procedures for the staff. We, <coughs> excuse me. We brought in uh, education. We brought in seminars. Um, so the staff had more and more education and knowledge on what their job roles were, how to better care for pets, how to put better procedures in place, uh, how to look after them um, to the standards that the customers would expect. How to speak to customers was a was a big one. Um, we and how to listen more actively and talk less. Um, so what we what we often encourage people to do is don't listen with the intent to reply, but listen carefully to the instructions. Um, uh, under promise and over deliver was something that we were actively trying to do a lot. So I guess what what our role was is to look at what the clientele expected and what to what we could um, honestly uh, provide and work within trying to reach a common goal of what would make everybody happy rather than uh, you know like a win-lose like a situation we're trying to find a, a perfect win-win so um, the facility that we've got uh, we've got two facilities we've got one in Dural, new south wales and one in terrigal new south wales uh, the one in terrigal new south wales is uh, a custom-built facility. The one in Dural was uh, a, a pre-built, um, older facility. Um, it's an old-style kennel. The one in uh, Terrigal, New South Wales, is absolutely outstanding. Um, if you go on to our website, which is PetResultsAustralia.com, it gives you a walkthrough of the facility, and I'm I'm sure that you couldn't help being impressed with it. It's a very impressive-looking location. It was uh, supposed to look like, which it does, it very much does. It was supposed to look like a Mediterranean sort of like a Tuscan, um, Italian, uh, Tuscany sort of look, uh, and feel that when people drop their pets off, they thought, wow, my pet's going to as equally lovely location as I'm going to go to when I'm on holidays. <laughs> so basically they are on vacation as well. That, and, and that's a great thing. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think kenneling a dog can be a stressful situation and certainly having a facility like that um, <clears throat> is something that will relieve that stress and, and kind of relieve the anxiety of being separated from their owners. Um, so, you know, you've done a lot of training and I know um, you actually do some training at the resort while dogs are, or while the parents are away. Um, mm. So, you know, what, what are some of the challenges? So if, if they don't take you up on the training and, and they're just there boarding, what, what do you find to be some of the challenges to running a boarding facility, especially if the dogs aren't, you know, exposed to that formal training? The training is a great aspect in that it provides an outlet for the dogs. It gives them extra stimuli that they can, um, let a little of their energy go. Um, we try and provide a 
pleasant experience in the kennel as much as you possibly can. There's always going to be stress when a dog leaves home. It doesn't matter whether the dog's going to the vet or it's leaving uh, to go to another location. I mean, stress is something that is a normal um, precursor in life. Uh, Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky talks about it in his book, Behave, um, which I'm a big fan of and I advocate highly. Uh, it's a hard read, but it's a very good book for people who are interested in uh, neuroscience and behavior. But he talks about stress. I'm going to get back to a, your question in a second, but he, he <laughs> sure. talks about he talks about stress and pressure. And people often these days overthink stress and pressure. I mean, there can be too much of it, of course, which is damaging. But stress and pressure are a normal aspect of life, and they teach us how to overcome and adapt to different environments. So in a, in a large scenario, stress and pressure are required to help you become a stronger and a more adaptive person or pet or whatever. So we understand that, that pets are going to be stressed when they come to our facility. What we try and do is reduce the impact of that stress as much we, as we can. One of those ways is we, um, with owner permission, we um, try and pair up dogs so they're not sitting in a pen alone, that they actually have a friendly buddy who is equal size and equal, equal temperament, equal age. Um, so if we've got a couple of old dogs, we might put a couple of old dogs together. If we've got a couple of young friendly dogs that are playful, we'll put them together to play with each other. And that way, when they come to the boarding kennel, they're not sitting in a pen alone, um, frightened and not knowing what's going on. At least they have someone that they can interact with, that they can cuddle up with. Um, and of course that's a, a careful procedure in matching and pairing. And I, I tell you what, I've got some of the best staff in the world who, when it comes to, uh, dog behavior, then some of my staff are, who are kennel hands don't even have the qualification of the trainers, but they've got amazing, absolutely amazing pairing and socialization skills. Absolutely incredible. And that is just, as I said, that is a skill and an art form itself for people who run um, daycare facilities and, and uh, matching and pairing dogs in any way, shape or form. So those aspects are very, very important for dogs that are going into new facilities. We do other things like um, playing music in the in the environment where they're in. So when they're sleeping at night, we've got classical music playing to the pets. That reduced stress and the impact of being in the kennels. The barking reduced about 80% immediately when we implemented that. So when we put the speaker system in and started playing music to them, we play easy listening music during the day so the staff don't fall asleep listening to the classical music. And then we play classical music to the pets at night so they can calm and, and reduce their impact and stress. A clean environment is also uh, a less stressful environment. So we make sure we clean properly, um, making sure that we're using uh, good disinfectants, pet-friendly disinfectants and bleaches. We also use uh, anatomized viricide to make sure that we reduce the impact of, of socially born diseases, um, such as canine cough, etc. cetera, uh, and making sure that we feed good quality food as well. So, you know, we're making sure that, that pets are getting looked after, that they're getting the attention they deserve, that the staff are actually putting hands on them, they're checking them constantly. So we do... Uh, a process called um, ears, eyes, bellies, and bums. And that means that the, the dog has get, got to get a proper hands-on check every day to make sure it's in good working order. And not only that, we've got qualified and uh, passionate staff that absolutely love their job. They love the industry that they're working in. They're not here for the money because let's face it, the pet industry is not a very high paying job, 
but it's a it's a job of uh, of passion and um, and love and belief in the industry itself. Uh, I mean, who else would take a low paying job while you're having um, dogs jumping um, poo and wee all over you when you're going in to clean up in the morning, and uh, and still be smiling and happy and loving the job that they're doing and couldn't imagine doing anything else. So. You know, I, I certainly have a lot of regard for anybody out there that's working in the boarding or daycare industry and is still doing it with a big smile on their face. Um, you guys are heroes to a lot of people, uh, especially the people who are stressing their, their brains out about leaving their pet dog behind with you, um, that when the, they know that they can be comfortable in those situations, trust you and know that you you might be a stranger to them, but as you develop and as you bring your um, consistent business there, you become a part of a large family, which is very exciting for a lot of people to be able to know that they can have that trust and belief in you. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I've seen, you know, and we talked about social media being a blessing and a curse. Uh, so many pet industry professionals suffer from burnout and fatigue just from either overwork or just not enjoying what they're doing. So I, I think what you just said resonates so well. And it's something that, you know, I see on an almost everyday basis. Um, let me ask you, Glenn, what, what sort of competition do you have in Australia, whether, whether it be on the training side or on the uh, boarding side? Uh, what, what, what's the competitive atmosphere like? Uh, competition is healthy. Uh, Australia is uh, very, very much becoming uh, an active industry in 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 the pet industry itself. Uh, I mean, even through the National Dog Trainers Federation, I train a lot of my competition. Uh, however, I don't look at it as being uh, a problem for us because I believe that if I'm helping them raise their standards, then we're raising the industry standards and raising the roof together. Uh, I'd much rather do that than constantly have the pet industry on the news and the focus being negative that we've got these rogue operators or mavericks out there that are just destroying the industry and creating a problem for ourselves. But yeah, look, there's there's certainly um, healthy competition out there. What I do like about it is, uh, especially in the boarding industry, is there's the boarding industry. I mean, you could fill kennels um, hundreds of times over if all the dogs needed to go on holidays at one time. So the way we look at it, and I mean, there's such space between us, is that we need to work with each other. We need to raise the industry standards together. Uh, we need to communicate with each other. We need to have an active community, and we need to make sure that, um, you know, we're working actively against getting people out of the industry who are not doing the right thing and who are constantly bringing uh, negative attention to, to uh, media groups. Um, but the good thing is, is that we're seeing less and less of that all the time. We are seeing people who are bringing the standard up. So again, my applause and my congratulations and total appreciation to those people who are working hard and taking their industry seriously and not just um, being lazy slobs and creating problems for everyone. Oh, agreed. Um, <laughs> you know, we hear horror stories in America with, <clears throat> particularly with, uh, you know, some of the Rover and Wag sitters, um, which I could get to a whole nother episode in and of itself, but I'll move on. Um, what do you do with regard to marketing? Um, you know, obviously you have your website, but you know, what, what else, um, do you find works, uh, down, down under? 
Definitely social media. Uh, social media changed the the ball game altogether. Uh, if I went back 20 years ago, I would say it was the yellow pages. If you weren't the yellow pages, you were dead, uh, dead in the water. If you don't have uh, an active Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram uh, site at the moment advertising your um, your business and giving people a bit of an insight on what you're doing, sharing photos and stories about what's going on on not only the, the pets that are in there, but also the staff at your facilities. People like to see pictures of their dogs when they're on holidays so that they can relax and know that their dogs are actually out in the yard having a good time. Uh, they like to uh, see the training videos that the trainers are doing. So I think if you're focusing on good marketing, you really need to make sure that you've got an active social media account and that you're constantly, but not overdoing it. I think one of the things that annoys a lot of people is that if you're doing like six posts a day and they're uh, all of the same thing and it looks staged and it looks set up, I think people like, from the experience that I've, or, or the feedback that I've had, I think people like to see genuine articles. Uh, they like to see um, the occasional um, show of their pet. So an unexpected gift at an unexpected time when people are on holiday and suddenly they get a little um, pet message from us with a, a, a small video or a photo of them and the, of their pet uh, with a little write-up of what they've been doing and the adventures they've been having. Those sort of things are going to get extra miles for your business. Yeah, I would agree. I think nothing annoys me more than going on to, say, Instagram and you know, five of the first 10 posts are like the same person, you know, where I'm just, I, I feel like I'm getting spammed. So there's, there's definitely a balance. Now, do you handle the social media or do you have someone handle it uh, within your staff or? Yeah, we've got a couple of young ladies that do our social media. Um, Sarah, who's our uh, marketing guru. And we've just brought another young lady on Nat, um, who's been with our business. She's been uh, involved in our uh, reception and admin team for many years now. So uh, we've got, we're very fortunate to have them uh, taking care of it. Sarah is, uh, she's got a marketing background. We, we brought her over from another company and she's absolutely fantastic. She's been very instrumental in, um, in helping us change the, the floor plan of our business. Um, we started to, uh, because of her help and the, the way the staff were restructuring and organizing, we were all working together as a as a well-oiled team in the same direction, we started winning a lot of business awards and being recognized um, in better categories. So it, it really does make a difference when you've got a great team behind you. And our, our mantra at work is, uh, I think it comes from um, Vince Lombardo, who was, uh, I think he was a coach of the, the Green Bay Packers. Uh, he said that a champion team will always beat a team of champions. And that's uh, something that we open and close meetings with all the time is it's not about the individual, it's about the team. I think that if you focus on having good team dynamic and a strategy within the team to work together to find that common goal and what it is and identify it, you're going to have some very good, strong business points. Yeah, absolutely. You can have a bunch of all-stars, but if you have no chemistry, then <laughs> you know, you're know you probably not going to put a winning team out there. So, absolutely. Uh, hey, so as if all this wasn't enough to keep you busy, you also have a podcast and we talked about it, uh, but it's called the canine paradigm. So yeah, the canine uh, paradigm. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit about the show. Uh, you actually have a partner that you broadcast with. Yeah. So the, the canine paradigm was actually going to be a title for a book I was going to write. Um, I am writing a book at the moment, but, um, 
you know, uh, my, my wife was saying to me all the time, you know, are you still going to write that book? And I was dribbling uh, or dabbling around, not dribbling, dabbling around uh, writing at the time. And uh, that was the title. That was always the title that I was, I was going to do. But uh, a colleague of mine, Pat Stewart, who's my uh, co-host and co-owner of the Canine Paradigm, uh, we were, we were, you know, we met each other through a dog training seminar um, several years back and we were chatting with each other and uh, he's got a, uh, a very, very, um, he's got a great discipline as far as, um, as learning and education. I mean, he's really risen to a great position in a very short amount of time. And I liked his, um, I liked his position on everything. I loved uh, bantering with him. And him and I would get together and tell stories and sometimes people would listen to us and say, you know, you guys are good together. You've got a good chemistry on your storytelling, et cetera. And um, we were sitting down one day and I said, you know, we really should put this on media or something like that, like a podcast or something. And he said, yeah, I'm down for that. And it sort of started as a casual thing. Uh, we had a different name for it at the time and <laughs> we started recording a few shows and they were terrible. Uh, we were just, we missed the point of what we were trying to do. So we scrapped it all. Um, it sort of sat in the background for about, um, 18 months. And I said to him, look, I'd really like to, to try this again. And that's when we changed the name to the canine paradigm. We brought that in and, uh, we started recording shows. The first one we did our pilot episode, um, was about me and our, our um, recording went terrible. It didn't actually go through the deck. It went straight through the computer and it sounded absolutely ridiculous. But we thought, oh, look, it's too late now. We've, we've committed to it. We're going to put it out there and we're going to make it happen. And we learned a lot about podcasting in that time. We learned, the, you know, a lot of the do's and don'ts. Um, and we also, well, I did. I got to spend many, many hours in front of YouTube and, and researching online on how to improve sound quality how to improve uh, editing. So, you know, I, I started purchasing a lot of the Adobe suite and getting uh, the right type of material. And before you know it, we actually had a show that really started to resonate with people. Uh, one of the things that I think we found gave us success is that we, we kept original all the time. I mean, we swear a bit on the show. Some people don't like the cussing and, you know, have given us feedback to say, you know, you swear a bit, but we kind of, it's our identity. It's part of the show. It's part of what we want to do. We like to laugh and joke, but we also like to implement or trying to stitch in a serious message at the same time. Um, we try and so, uh, source great people from around the world with, with top messages for helping us inspire and um, encourage young trainers who are coming on board or even seasoned trainers to learn better methods to push themselves to understand that there's more information out there that you're not just in a corner of the world by yourself you're not locked into something that's that's never going to give you overall satisfaction and i guess uh the main thing for us is it's is it's got to be fun at the end of the day if it's not fun and we're not getting out of it what we want to get out of it there was no point doing it but here we are almost two years later and we're still having an absolute ball doing the show yeah, I definitely had a chance to listen to a couple episodes before, um, you know, we did this interview. And I think one of them, uh, if I recall, because you mentioned YouTube was the uh, it was one I think you did relatively recently was the looking at the bad training videos on YouTube. <laughs> oh, trainers who bring out terrible videos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 
So I, I did not get to listen to that one, but I'm definitely going back because I, I know you said you you like to have fun and that that one definitely seemed like a fun one uh, to have to catch. Um, well, that one actually had a serious message to it because that was about people who um, are archaic in their methods of training. I mean, there was one guy in the States who was training a dog by belting it in the in the back with a plastic baseball bat or something like that as punishment. And it was just hideous to watch. I mean, we were just cringing watching the video and it was a message against that type of training. I mean, I, I know that that guy was uh, dealt with by the authority over there and, and I, I doubt that he'll be working in the industry again. Well, I hope not. Or if he does, I hope that he does a complete about face and that he learns a valuable lesson about what it is to care and be responsible for, um, or having the the responsibility of being allowed to train other people's pets and not train them in that fashion. Yeah. And, um, you know, we talked about social media and some of the other things being a curse. I mean, having to sit and watch some videos that quite frankly would turn your stomach, um, is one of those things that's a not so great, uh, thing about today's culture. Um, mm. so you know, you've had guests from your show from all over the world. Um, what are some of the challenges or misconceptions in the industry relative to Australia versus the rest of the world? Or is it kind of the same problems and same pitfalls um, everywhere? It's very much uh, similar no matter where you go. Um, there's, I mean, every country has its it's slight twist on what the issue might be. Um, I think one of the misconceptions was that in Australia that we didn't know much and, and that was certainly true for a period of time. We were reliant on what the rest of the world was doing and felt like we were the, um, you know, the poor stepchild who was getting the hand-me-down clothes. However, I think that, I don't think, I, I really feel it in my bones that Australia is starting to take a front stage at the moment and there is some exceptional people and exceptional trainers uh, within our own country who are really starting to make headlines um, around the world because they're they're not only great competitors, they're also great educators. Um, and that's a wonderful thing for a, a small country with a smaller population than a lot of uh, countries around the world. So I'm really proud of uh, many of the people in the industry. I'm really proud that, that we're really uh, making great inroads to getting our education level up that we're not only um, talking about it but we're also proving it on the stage as well yeah and i think one of the things uh we we've talked about several times during the course of this episode is that worldwide reach uh that you probably didn't have 15 20 years ago mm, um very I know, important yeah i i think um i remember seeing that you have more listeners in the U.S. pretty much than anywhere else. You know, was that something you expected or even thought about when you started your podcast? We didn't know what to expect when we started our podcast. We didn't know anything about podcasting. It was uh, for a lot of people. Um, I mean, I'm, you and I are on podcast community pages, and a lot of people are asking the same questions when they start up. What do you do? How do you do it? How do you market? What do you look for? How do you make the show come together? Uh, they were all the questions that we went through. And originally, as I said to you, when we first started, it was a complete and utter disaster. Uh, however, as we went along and we started learning things and started asking questions and started researching, we started finding that we were um, making some uh, terrific inroads uh, to getting to getting the show together and having it uh, develop the sound and 
the meaning that we wanted it to do. But um, it's what? Well, sorry, what was the? I missed the point of the question again. What was that? <laughs> now I'm trying to think of the point of the question. Um, <laughs> you know, was you know, did you expect that going into this thing that you'd have more people in the United States or you know in some of these ah, remote yes. countries throughout the world listening to your show from Australia? We we didn't know what the reach was going to be, Dave. We were um, like when we looked at started looking at the statistics and started to see that uh, different countries were starting to pop up on the radar. Um, that was like exciting for us. The fact that somebody outside our country was listening to our show, and suddenly we started to get people contacting us from uh, the United States, and then people from the UK, and then people from Canada, and uh, people from um, uh, I've had people from Vietnam contact me. I had a guy that was uh, at one stage trying to get me over there to run a seminar for him. Um, we got people contacting us from China. We got people contacting us from New Zealand. We got people contacting us from Europe. And it was just amazing where the, the spread of information was going to. Uh, now on the statistics, according to our statistics, we're in uh, 99 countries around the world. Um, we've got an active listening base at any one time of about 10,000 people. And I think our show has been downloaded uh, almost 200,000 times. So um, it, it really is quite incredible where it went to and how organic it was uh, all once it started to get some legs under it. And I think that probably took us about six months before we started to see that reach going out. Um, people started sharing it. People started... Um, you know, asking questions. We started getting people interested in being on the show. Uh, and I guess there's many thanks to people within, excuse me, <clears throat> there's people within the United States that agreed to come on the show and be part of the interview um, that really helped us get some legs under us. So if you are running a podcast show like yourself and many other people, speaking to people internationally who have do have a following of, of um, guests of their own, uh, that inspires them to start listening and them to become part of the active fan base and them to uh, push the show to other people, which many, many thanks and, and uh, such appreciation from, from Pat and myself on, on that spectrum that we do have people that uh, love and support our show and even financially back us as well through Patreon. Yeah, and Patreon and some of those other things are tools that weren't available you know, we talked about this before the show, before we started recording. And, you know, it is a snowball kind of running downhill. You Once you get it going, it is something that, you know, does take a while. But once it gets going, um, does have some incredible momentum. So, you know, listening to you today, I have to ask, where, where do you find the time to do everything? You know, it's, uh, you, you know, because I, I think this is a challenge for a lot of people, not not just in the pet industry, but just in general, um, as far as time management and getting the things done that need to get done to build your business, where where do you find that time and what tips do you have? Well, I guess I'm not one of these people who just works nine to five. I'm not locked into a mentality of thinking my job is between those hours. I look at it that I... I in some cases, I have a very privileged lifestyle. In other cases, I've got a very hard-working lifestyle. However, 
Um, I'm often podcasting or organising podcasts or mixing podcasts up until 12 o'clock at, at night, sitting there in, in bed with the laptop on my on my lap and uh, going for it in, in the editing suite. Um, and it's the same thing, you know, like I'm uh, this week, I'm, I'm actually doing the National Dog Trainers Federation. We've got 16 students outside at the moment who are with um, one of my colleagues today. Um, I'm fortunate enough to get a day off today. But uh, even on my days off, you know, if emails need to be read and answered, I don't shirk that responsibility. Um, I'm part of the senior management group. I look at it that my responsibility, you know, I've got to have a life myself, which I, I do. And um, the owners of, of my organization are very supportive of, of times when I need to get out and get away on my bike and go for a ride somewhere to relieve the stress. However, if you want to be successful, you can't just have a nine to five mentality. If you're running your own business, that's not going to work for you. It's just not going to cut it. You've got to get out there. You've got to hustle. You've got to make connections. You've got to network. Um, there's a colleague uh, in the States that I met, a guy called Bill Church, and he said, uh, your net worth is your network. And I really, it really resonated me when I heard him say that. I thought to myself, that really, really is true. You've got to network yourself. You've got to back yourself. You've got to believe in what you're doing. You've got to have a good message. Uh, and I think, number one, you've got to be kind and you've got to be genuine. Yeah, I think that is it, that's a key because I think people can see through the BS. <laughs> you know, so I, I think having a genuine mindset going in, um, you know, that is something that will eventually pay off. And I think having that work ethic, um, <clears throat> I think to your point, people come out of the corporate world, they say, Hey, yeah, I'd love to work with pets. And, you know, it's not a nine to five gig, not by any stretch of the imagination. So well, not in boarding kennels. It's not, it's a 24 hour a day, seven day a week organization. Absolutely. And when people are on holidays, you're working, you know, or you're exactly. working. So, mm. um, and I think that's something you know, a lot of people take for granted. So I'm um, going to put you on the spot here. So um, Glenn, tell us something that maybe your podcast listeners or, you know, other people might not know about you. Oh, <laughs> that's a hard one, actually, Dave, because usually I spill the beans on most things that I do. Um, hmm. I guess the one thing is, and, and probably people who listen to my podcast might probably go duh if I say this, but I'm I'm probably a little bit of a nerd at heart. Um, I like technology, and it drives my wife crazy because I'm always um, out at the um, at the shops buying something of the latest technology, <laughs> which drives her absolutely crazy when I come home with some gadget. And then she asks me, "What are you going to do with that?" And I give her a whole range of justifications of what I'm going to do with it. And only to her disgust to find it stashed in a drawer six months later. <laughs> well, you know, with technology, something that was new and uh, fresh now, six months later, could be obsolete. So that's unfortunately the, the, the way it goes sometimes. So I know it just kills you, doesn't it? That you <laughs> buy something and you think, oh, this is awesome. It's the best. And then suddenly it's six months later, there's like, it's so redundant. It's not funny. <laughs> yeah. I kind of have that problem myself. So Glenn, where, where can people connect with you? Uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook. Um, I'm actively uh, on social media. So if you just look up Glenn Cook, you'll see a picture of me usually with a dog or a motorcycle. 
you can, if you need to discuss anything with me about the, the podcast, you can contact me through info at the canine paradigm.com. Uh, or if it's boarding kennel related, you can call it, contact me at Glenn with a double N at petresortsaustralia.com. Awesome. Well, listen, it has been awesome having you today. Uh, we are going to make sure we put up all the links in our show notes. Um, so that way people can reference this, uh, if they're driving in their car, they can always go back to it. So Glenn Cook, thank you very much for being a part of Peck Air Rockstars today. Thank you very much, Dave. I really appreciate being on the show and I wish you all the success for your podcast. Uh, likewise. Thanks. Today's episode was brought to you by the Pet Care Rockstars program. If you're looking to start or grow your pet care business, this program is for you. The Pet Care Rockstars program features downloadable content, including forms, contracts, audio and video tutorials, and much more. In addition, you'll have lifetime access to everything in the Pet Care Rockstars program, along with all future content, which we will be updating on a regular basis. Go to PetCareRockstars.com and click on the Become a Pet Care Rockstar Now link at the top of the page. And we'll see you on the next episode of Pet Care Rockstars. This has been Pet Care Rockstars with Dave Westwood. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the show so you'll be first to hear new episodes packed with tips and tools for your pet care business. And visit our website at PetCareRockstars.com to find out about the Pet Care Rockstars program, our all-in-one solution to get you up and running for your pet care business. To join the conversation and access more great content on your favorite social media sites, just search Pet Care Rockstars.